Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. In Scripture, it says that Stephen looked up to heaven and he saw God, and he saw Jesus standing next to his father, looking at him, which was confirmation that in this moment when Stephen is dying, he saw Jesus. And that was exactly what I needed to hear so that I could know that when whatever was happening to Molly, that she knew that he was with her. And that in an instant, from the moment she was alive to the moment she died, she was in the arms of Jesus. And and that's what I carried with me to help quiet the fears that would come up in my mind. She wasn't alone. He was with her in that moment, and she has been with him ever since that moment. Doxology Bible Church is proud to present EverStory, launching wherever you listen to podcasts on June 6th. EverStory is a weekly, seasonal podcast featuring Christ-centered stories of hope and transformation, told by people just like you. No chit-chat, just raw, powerful stories. Stories inspire us to connect with each other in real, tangible ways. With stories, we're able to glorify a God who relentlessly pursues us. Mark 16:15 tells us to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Stories embody who we are as Christians. Without them, Paul's letters would have never been shared. Without stories, a person with Christ in their heart might never find the courage to bring the word to their neighbor. Without stories, the Great Commission never occurs. Check in with us often as we introduce stories about the way Jesus' radical love is moving in truly awesome ways. Find EverStory wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, follow Doxology Bible Church on Facebook or Instagram at Doxology Bible. Want to share your story or know someone who might? Send us an email to stories at doxology.church. Because everyone has a story. Hey, it's Chris Freeland, and you're listening to the Doxology Bible Church Podcast. If you want to know more about who we are or learn to connect with us, please visit doxology.church. Most of all, we hope the following message will help you take the next step in your faith journey, whatever it is. We are thrilled today to have Dr. Steve Strauss as our speaker for our Mission Sunday. Uh, Steve and I were uh, students together at uh, DTS for a couple of years, and I appreciated him a little more from a distance because I saw his passion for missions. Uh, Even at that point, uh, he and his wife, Marcia, left Dallas Seminary, uh, went to Africa through a a number of circumstances, ended up in Ethiopia, and for 19 years they led ministry in Ethiopia in a time of political transition and turmoil, Uh, God used him to spearhead evangelistic ministry in that pivotal country with Sudan Interior Missions and uh, was involved in starting three uh, theological uh, schools that prepare pastors for ministry and and spiritual leaders for that part of the world. Uh, Ten years ago, he and his wife returned to the United States to lead uh, SIM here in the U.S. And uh, now, uh, just a few months ago, he 
returned to Dallas and is a professor of world missions and intercultural studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, they, Steve and Marcia, have three young adult children. Two of them are married. Uh, and one, and that one just got engaged. Those are always milestones. Uh, uh, if you can get them, uh, it, that means they're moving toward getting insurance as well. That's right. So that's, uh, that, that would be a hopeful thing. Uh, lots, of, lots of different transitions going on for Steve and Marcia. But, but it is a thrill to have you with us today. Uh, you're going to be challenged from God's Word. Steve is a, an incredible communicator. And so uh, why don't you give him a warm a McKinney welcome as he comes and shares with us today. Well, good morning. I'm going to go back here and get this and bring it up just to have a place to put my Bible. And I want to thank the worship team this morning for that incredible job of worship, especially that last piece. Um, I don't know if you were thinking through the words of shout to the Lord as the young ladies were, were uh, displaying the words of that song with their motions, but it was very, very powerful. Uh, four years ago, my wife and I had a chance to be in Hawaii, and uh, it, there had been some kind of offshore gale or something, uh, and when we went to the beach one day, the, the waves and the wind were just so incredible. That song actually came to my mind where it says, mountains fall down and the seas will roar at the power of his hand. Then we went to the island of Hawaii, and we saw the place where the most recent volcano had erupted, and you could just see this devastated landscape. It looked like the surface of the moon, or for Lord of the Rings affectionary it looked like Mordor. Uh, it was just incredibly desolate. And that, the section of mountains falling down came to my mind. So as they were uh, worshiping the Lord using every part of themselves, I, I thought of those images and thought how perfect that this display of worship in a Hawaiian means and, and those words of that song. Anyway, it was, it was meaningful for me if it wasn't meaningful for anybody else, and I appreciated it. Well, it's great to be back in Fort Worth. Um, I started my growing up years right here. My dad was pastor of Fort Worth Bible Church during my first memories, and as I was driving over on 20, I thought, well, it's just good to be back in Fort Worth. I feel like I'm coming home. And so thank you for having me this morning. Um, as I was preparing this week for this morning's message, I just felt a strong sense of a passage, a text that God wanted me to speak from that was different from the one I had communicated several weeks ago. So if you have your bulletin where at the top it says energized on mission, you can cross that out because we're going to look at a whole different passage. Fortunately, I didn't send a detailed outline. And the, the message this morning is called partying. Yes, the word is partying. Partying with God. Let's bow and pray and ask God to open our hearts and instruct us from his word this morning. Father, thank you so much that we had this wonderful opportunity to worship you and to display on your power, your might, and also your covenant love to us, uh, your people, and that that includes peoples from all over the world. Lord, we get excited when we think about that, being around the throne and, and seeing your majesty displayed with people from every different corner of the world. But then there are times, Lord, when we stop and realize that includes some people who right now may be opposed to you people that threaten us, that we're a little uncomfortable with. Help us, Lord, to be reminded of how you feel about them and how you want us to feel about them. And may we change our responses to them because of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It is an exciting time to be part of the Great Commission movement around the world because in the last 30, 40 years, some of the nations and peoples that have long been 
almost completely without the gospel, have responded and come to Christ in an overwhelming way. Incredible movements to Christ around the world. Take, for example, the country of Nepal. When we were in seminary just 35 years ago, Nepal was one of the most unreached countries in the entire world. And yet, in the last few years, people have come to Christ through all kinds of means in Nepal, so that the number of believers has gone from less than a dozen back in the early 1960s, when it was illegal to be a Christian and be in Nepal, to today estimates of over half a million believers in the country of Nepal. Not long ago, I had a chance to hear Dr. David Howard, formerly president of the World Evangelical Alliance, who had recently been to Nepal, just before I heard him. And he told us a story about one of his, his excursions in Nepal. He had been out of the main cities and had been in the countryside, in this country where just a few years ago there had been almost no Christians at all. And his uh, car had stopped and they had taken a break to stretch their legs. And he saw a little girl working over in one of the fields. Uh, a farmer girl just working in one of the fields. And uh, so he took his translator and he walked over to talk to her. And as he walked, he could hear that she was singing a song. And she looked up at this foreign visitor and, and he said through his translator, that was a beautiful song. What was that song about? And she said to him, my song was about walking the Jesus way. Do you walk the Jesus way? From this little peasant girl in Nepal to one of the leaders of world evangelicalism. The gospel is stretching itself out around the world. Take China, for example. At the end of the Cultural Revolution in uh, the late 1970s, uh, many observers wondered if the church would still even exist in China. And uh, today, estimates are somewhere around 70 to 100 million Christians in China. Uh, the government itself admits to 30 million. We don't know how many believers may be in China just in the last 30, 40 years. Or take... Muslim countries, Muslim peoples even. This morning your special prayer emphasis was for Iran and for the Persian peoples around the world. Again, the late 1970s, the time of the Iranian Revolution, uh, estimates were maybe 300 Iranian believers around the world. And today, people are guessing perhaps as many as 150,000 Iranians who are now followers of Jesus Christ. Even among this people that is largely Islamic, tremendous movements to Christ. And yet, almost paradoxically, though the fields are white, our theme for the missions conference, and people are responding to Christ, it almost seems like out there, all over the place, the resistance, the hostility, the enmity against believers, against followers of Jesus, has gone up even greater. Where the gospel is being resisted, it's being resisted with as much hatred and ferocity as any place around the world. All we have to do is go back to China, where, yes, millions of people have come to Christ. But not long ago, a government official was quoted as saying that the government policy was, quote, to still strangle the baby in the manger, unquote, speaking of the Christian church. And there are still hundreds of Chinese Christians in re-education through labor camps. Chinese believers are still routinely arrested in various parts of the country if they become too overt or open about their faith or if they're meeting in unregistered house groups. Or the Muslim world, which perhaps we hear the most about, where there continues to be Islamic extremism and violence against Christians. Just a week ago in Iraq, a Christian church was attacked by Islamic extremists with automatic weapons and explosives. Fifty-nine people were killed. But, you know, we don't have to go 
to some far-off dangerous corner of the world to feel hostility against our Christian faith and values, do we? Right here in our own country, oftentimes we feel our values attacked. We feel that, that even some of those that know us feel that at best we're a little bit deluded, and at worst we're downright dangerous if we actively practice our Christian faith. Many of us have had the experience of feeling excluded or taken advantage of or made fun of because of our Christian lifestyle. And beyond individuals, there seem to be whole movements of those that are hostile to us because of our Christian values, whether it's the, the gay rights movement that threatens marriage or the abortion rights movement that threatens the unborn or the media that seems to mock us or those in the public square that seem to want to limit us from expressing our faith out in the arena of the world. Now I have a question for you. How do you feel about those who don't like us and don't like our Christian brothers and sisters around the world because of our faith in Christ. As those around the world in the white fields are working to bring people to Christ, how do you feel about those from among their own people sometimes? Those who are working to hurt them and harm them. And those who are opposed to Christian values right here at home. Well, I'll tell you my natural feelings. Sometimes I go into a defensive posture. Sometimes my thought is this, you know, you just stay away from me and mine, okay? You let me practice my Christian faith, you let me express my Christian values, and just don't threaten us. You let us express our faith and, and leave us alone. Let's build the wall higher, let's build the moat a little wider. Let's, let's enjoy being together as God's people and just have those people leave us alone so that we can be ourselves. And please don't threaten or attack Christians around the world. My defensive posture. But sometimes, sometimes I go into my offensive posture. I think in terms of political and judicial victories at home. I think in terms of military victories abroad. I think in terms of enemies, individuals who are attacking Christians, dying violent deaths, or otherwise being cut short in their life. Because they're attacking Christians. I have to confess, sometimes I, I think those thoughts. Defensive, offensive. What's God's perspective? How does God feel about those who don't like us because of our Christian faith? How does God feel about those who threaten us because we are his people? If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn, and we're going to look at one of the most understudied and difficult to understand psalms in all of scripture it's the 87th psalm psalm 87 if you have your bible go back to psalm 87 tucked away in the corner of the psalter it's a song of zion that is it's a psalm that the ancient hebrews sang to celebrate being god's people to celebrate being part of Zion. And that's indeed what the first stanza very clearly does. The song is broken into two stanzas and then a little concluding section. And the first stanza celebrates how good it is to be God's people in God's place. Verses 1 to 3, stanza 1 of Psalm 87. He has set his foundation on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. 
glorious things are said of you, O city of God, Selah. Stop, he says, and think about that. Reflect on how good it is to be one of God's people in God's place. The first words of the psalm in the original language are his establishment. It's like there's a shining, flashing, neon sign over Jerusalem that says, God's place, God's place. He loves it. He identifies with it because he's made it his own. And the people there are his, and he loves being with his people. The psalm says he especially, verse 2, loves the gates of Zion. The gates are where the people congregated, kind of like the public square or the mall where all the people were. And God loved being there in the gates with his people and his place. The gates of a city were also the most vulnerable part of the city where the enemy could attack. And so God's presence there would give his people great security to know that God was there with them and protecting them. And so the psalmist says, glorious things are said of you, Zion, because this is God's place. God loves being with his people, and his people love being with God. Now, don't you feel that way when you're together with God's people in his place? When you get, come together on Sunday mornings here at McKinney Church, and you worship as we worship this morning, you're with people who share your values, people who love the word of God and love the Lord Jesus, and there's a tremendous sense of joy and security being in God's place with his people. Or maybe you're part of a small cell group, a home Bible study, some other group of God's people that you come together and you pray for each other and you feel your brother or sister really uniting with you, caring for you, reaching out to you, and you think it's so good to be with God's people together in God's place. With the ancient psalmist, we can agree, glorious things are said of you, Lord. It's so good being with you in your place and your people because you love us. But then, verse 4, the psalmist turns to his second stanza to tell us about another group of people that God loves and wants to be with as well. Verse 4. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too and Tyre along with Cush and will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the registers of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. Selah. Stop and think about that for a while. From Jerusalem, the camera angle widens out to give a panorama of countries of the ancient world. But these were not just any countries listed in verse 4. Every one of these countries listed in verse 4 was in some sense a threat to ancient Israel. These were not the buddies. These were the enemies or potential enemies or past enemies. Rahab, that was a nickname for Egypt, the ancient enslavers of Israel. Babylon, that was the new bully on the block just over the horizon, threatening to swoop down and gobble up Israel and Judah. Philistia, that constant thorn in Israel's side, just on the border, always sending in raiders, always sending in those to cause all kinds of trouble. Tyre, up north, not a military threat, but an economic threat. The shrewd mer merchants, always ready to rob you blind. 
and a religious threat, the exporters of wicked, evil Baal worship. And Cush, south of Egypt, 2 Chronicles 16 tells us that once the, even the Cushites came up and invaded Judah. They were a threat, foreign, far away, exotic, but a threat, ready to come down and threaten God's people. Now what does God say about all of these peoples who threatened his people? He says he's going to make them, verse 4, among those who acknowledge me. That word acknowledge or know was used over in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, to describe God's relationship with his own covenant people. This is a kind of knowing that means warm covenant commitment and love. God's going to take these enemies that threaten Israel and have a relationship with them? More than that, God says three times in verses 4, 5, and 6 that he's going to write down, this one was born in Zion. What's that all about? Well, the picture is of God himself coming to the temple mound in Jerusalem. And as he comes into the temple mound where his people were gathered to worship him, he looks around and he sees, well, there's a Philistine. There's a Babylonian. There's a Cushite right here in my place, Zion. Yes, says God. This is so great. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give each one of these people their own birth certificate that makes them a native-born citizen of Zion. Not a proselyte, not a foreigner, but a native-born citizen of Zion. Here you go, Philistine. There's your birth certificate. You are now a native-born citizen of my place. Here you go, Babylonian. There's your birth certificate. You're now one of my people in my place. He's going to take all of these folks, he says, and register them as those born in Zion. And finally, verse 7. Kind of a fade-out, a last chorus at the end of this psalm. As they make music, they will sing, All my fountains are in you. These people are gathering around God as he hands out the birth certificates, and they start singing. They start dancing. And the word fountains means springs or sources of life. They're singing, our source of life is in you. It's like they're lifting up spring water and they're toasting God and they're praising him for giving them birth certificates and making them native-born citizens of Zion. All of these foreigners, all of these people who threaten Israel, they are partying with God. Now, how do you think those ancient Hebrews felt about Psalm 87? I imagine when it came time to sing Psalm 87 and the regular singing of the Psalter, probably the song leader said something like, all right, this morning, folks, it's time to sing Psalm 87. So let's all stand and sing stanza one only of Psalm 87. Because stanza one, well, that felt good, you know? God's our God, and we're part of his people, and we enjoy getting together, and amen, this is good stuff, but... Stanza two, whoa, all these threatening people are going to get birth certificates and be part of Zion. I don't know if we like that so much. You see, God wrote Psalm 87 to his ancient people to remind them of why they were his chosen people in the first place. Because, Genesis 12, God chose them to be a blessing to the nations. Because, Exodus 19, God chose them to be a priestly nation and mediate him to the nations. 
See, he chose them to be his people, not to stay in a holy huddle, not to stay in the promised land and just, just uh, enjoy simmering in the blessings of the promised land, but to be an outreach, to uh, be a blessing to reflect them to the nations. But it was so easy for his people to just stay in their own little country and hope that all of those nations, all of those hostile people would ignore them so they wouldn't threaten them, and we'll just stay and enjoy God's blessings. We'll ignore you, and you ignore us. So Psalm 87 reminds them of his, God's feeling about those that threaten his people. He wants to party with them, and he wanted his people to reflect him to the nations. I think that's God's message for us today as well. Because we have a lot of Philistines and Babylonians in our world, don't we? A lot of people who threaten us. Who is it that threatens you the most in your Christian walk? Maybe it's an individual. Somebody at work or school or in your neighborhood who seems to particularly have it out for you because you are a Christian. Maybe it's, it's some movement of those within our own country, the abortion rights, the gay rights people. Those people just drive you crazy. So, it makes you so angry because everything about them seems hostile to your Christian values. You can't think of anybody like that with any kind of sympathy or, or good thought at all. You just hate them. Maybe it's people of another religion. You see someone who is clearly of another religious persuasion here, and you don't want anything to do with them. They, they threaten you. You don't want to be anywhere close to them. You hear about them and what they're doing, whether it's, whether it's building a cultural center by the World Trade Center or, or a mosque or a temple, and you just don't want them in your neighborhood, don't want them anywhere close to you. You want to stay as far away from them, and you want them to stay as, way, as far away from you as possible. And overseas, well, just, just please ignore me, my people, and my Christians. Just stay away from us. Distance becomes our primary goal. See, God wants us to look at those people and recognize that when he sees them, he wants them to come and party with him. He wants to give them birth certificates. He wants those people to become his people. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that we should not stand for biblical values in the public arena. I'm not suggesting we do not not speak up for uh, and defend Christians around the world who are under persecution. Not at all. But we want to remember that God's primary focus is to look at those who are hostile to us who are his people because of our values and want to bring them to himself because that's the way he sees them. How do we get there? Well, first of all, we have to adopt God's attitude. See, God doesn't see those people as threats. He sees them as potential partiers. He doesn't look at the world and see us and them. He sees the them as potential us. And that's how he wants us to look at them as well. Whether it's the gay guy at work, the abortion rights doctor, the Muslim who serves you coffee at the convenience store. He looks at them Not as them, but as potential us, as potential partiers. And that's the way he wants us to look at them as well. Several years ago, I was at an international conference for world evangelism, and I heard the pastor of the largest evangelical church in Egypt, a man named Sana Maurice, get up and speak to us about the approach he has to take in dealing with militant Muslims, indeed all Muslims in Egypt. 
Sina Maurice, and this was his quote. He said, we must separate the spirit of Antichrist from the people. We must oppose the spirit, but love the people. And that's what God wants from us. I'm deeply concerned that the American evangelical church, in our correct and right opposition to non-Christian values, whether it's non-Christian religions, wanting to expose them as false, as counterfeit, which Islam certainly is. It is a counterfeit of true biblical faith. It is, there is no sense in which a person who is Muslim can come to God because they rejected Jesus Christ and his cross. They must come through Jesus Christ. Or we reject those and we, we, are, we oppose the systems of those that are trying to impose non-Christian values on our society. But I'm so concerned that we lump those movements with the individuals. God wants us to oppose the movements, but want to reach out and bring the individuals to himself. Because there's no way the movements are going to be checked unless the individuals come to him. When we were still missionaries in Ethiopia and were home on our last home assignment, our furlough, our daughter, who was then 16, had her first real live American job. And like most teenagers, she got her first job in a greasy fast food restaurant. And uh, she was telling us one evening about her work there and how grungy it was. And she was also telling us about the grungy lifestyles of some of the people she worked with. It was the fellow who was gay and the two girls who were sleeping around. And she's describing all this to our extended family together. And one family member said, "Uh, Kara, how can you even stand to work there? And our daughter said, but, but think of what will happen when they come to Christ. They're just so lost now. That's the attitude God wants us to have. To think what will happen when they come to Christ. And look at all of those folks that threaten us as potential partiers. That's the first response, to get God's attitude. And secondly, God wants us to respond with specific acts of his love. And it can be just about anything. To an individual that you may know. Let's reach out with acts of concern and kindness. Somebody at work, give them a compliment and offer to help them with their work. Perhaps invite them to coffee, invite them to lunch. Just ask them about their life, ask them about their day. Offer to pray for them. People very rarely refuse your offer to pray. Maybe it's somebody from another faith that you work with or you you meet at wherever you buy your coffee, a convenience store someplace, something like that. Spend some time getting to know them. Ask them their name. Ask them about their family, how long they've been in this country if they're an immigrant, Um, especially as we get closer to the Christmas season. Ask them perhaps if they would accept a a Bible from you as a Christmas gift or a copy of the Jesus video. Find out what their first language is. Give them a copy of the Jesus video in that language. You can find it online. The Jesus video is in hundreds and hundreds of languages around the world. Get it, buy it, pass it on to them. Maybe they will offer to give you a copy of their scriptures. Accept it. It's not going to hurt you. Take it as long as they agree to read the copy of the Bible that you give to them. Somebody in your neighborhood, invite them over for a Christmas party. Have a Christmas cookie swap. Um, And maybe if they're not a Christian, they don't celebrate Christmas, invite them over and tell them about the traditions of Christmas. What a marvelous way to introduce them to who Jesus was. Ask them about their holidays. Tell them to tell you about those things as well. Really bold? Take a plate of cookies to the local abortion clinic. And when you do, tell them, you know, your solution to unwanted pregnancy is not the same as mine, but I want you to know I really care about you as people. They'll probably want the cookies taste-tested before they eat them, but go ahead and do it anyway. Find ways to reach out and specifically share love. 
and pray. Pray for individuals. Pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, but pray for those attacking them. I saw out in the lobby the marvelous reminder that we need to pray for our troops. Pray for our troops. Pray for those shooting the bullets at them. Not that they'll be successful, obviously, but pray that God will bring them to himself. Pray that they'll see a, a, a reflection of Jesus. Somehow they'll hear the gospel. Pray that there will be Saul of Tarsus among those who oppose Christians around the world. That's the way God begins people movements among Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. Pray that God will bring them to himself. Whenever you're reminded to pray for ours, pray for them as well, that they will be ours. Find ways to share God's love. Shortly at, before 9-11, several years ago, there was a Christian family in a North African Islamic Republic. The husband's name was Ralph, and he was working for a Christian humanitarian organization that was there providing relief and development for the people in Christ's name, but with a very, very low-key witness. Ralph's wife was named Anne, and they had a daughter, Amy. After 9-11 took place, they consulted with their team and determined that it was probably still safe for them to stay and finish their term of work there because people knew them and accepted them while they were there. And so they carried on and continued their ministry. Anne went to Europe for a seminar, leaving Ralph and his daughter, Amy, who was 11 or 12 years old. And one afternoon, Ralph asked Amy if she'd like to go for a walk on the beach. This country bordered the ocean. So they got into their land cruiser, drove to the beach, and Ralph got out of the car when they reached the end of the road in the beginning of the sand so he could let some air out of the tires so the car would ride better on the sand. And while he was doing that, a local man came along dressed in long Islamic robes and stopped and greeted Ralph, and Ralph greeted him. And then as the man walked past, he said, And sir, what country do you come from? And Ralph, who had leaned back down to work on his tires, said, Well, I'm an American looked at the tire and glanced up to see that the man had pulled a handgun out of his robes and was aiming it at him. Ralph jumped up and headed for the door of the car as he heard the man pull the trigger, but the gun misfired and clicked once. He opened the door and he heard two more misfires. As he slammed the door shut, he heard the the gun go off, he felt the bullet whiz by him, and then he heard his daughter Amy scream. Started the ignition put the car in gear and took off. Looked over at his daughter to see that her shirt was covered with blood. Got on his cell phone, called the nearest hospital to tell them he was bringing in a gunshot victim. Reached the emergency room. They were waiting there with a gurney. They took her in to x-ray to discover that the bullet was not lodged in her body at all. A later examination would reveal that the bullet had entered under her armpit bounced off her sternum and exited that side. It was later found in the right-hand side of the car. Amy was stabilized, medevaced to Europe, where she enjoyed a full recovery and was later came back to join her parents. Her parents were with her, of course, but then came back to the country to finish out their term of work. Meanwhile, while all of this was happening, an all-points bulletin was put out, the man was actually arrested, taken into custody, tried for an attempted murder, and imprisoned. Well, Ralph, Ann, and Amy finished out their term of work, and a couple of weeks before they were ready to go back to the United States, Amy announced that she would like to visit her assailant in prison and forgive him for the attack. Well, it took a lot of red tape, a lot of hurdles to jump through with the government, but they managed to get permission to visit the man, and they went to visit him in prison. They arrived. Ralph and Amy both spoke first, 
they were in, of course, a, a small room. The man was separated from them but could hear them. They gave him some gifts that they had brought him, some towels, soap, magazines, a Bible in the local language. Ralph read some scripture in the language. The man didn't respond much at all. He just listened. Amy spoke and said that she forgave him for attacking her. And the man didn't speak. He just kind of nodded his head. And finally, Anne, the mom, spoke up as well. She said, Mr. Muhammad, we are leaving now, but I want you to know something before we do. What you don't realize is that when those first three shots that you fired at my husband misfired and my husband's life was spared, God was looking after you. If those three shots had gone off, you would have been executed now for murder, not just in prison for attempted murder. We want you to know that God loves you as much as he loves my husband and daughter. He is just as interested in you. That's why we have come to see you today, to show you God's love. They left and went home. The next morning, a Mercedes limousine pulled up in front of their car, their house, and out stepped a very tastefully dressed Islamic lady who came to the house. She came up and said, I am the older sister of Muhammad, the man you visited yesterday in prison. I visit him once a week in prison, and yesterday when I visited, he gave me this letter to give to you. He told me about your visit. He wanted me to bring this to you. She left. They opened the letter and read this in part. For many years now, my life has been looking through an endless dark tunnel. But today, after your visit, I began to see a light at the end of that tunnel. In my education and reading, I have heard the term Christian love, but no one ever explained it to me. I just heard the term. But today, when you visited, I saw Christian love. And today, I think I began to live it. The people that we don't like very much because they don't like us, God sees them as individuals. He wants to party with them for all eternity. And you know what? He wants McKinney Memorial Bible Church to invite them to the party. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from your word. Not easy for your ancient people Israel to hear and not easy for us to hear. But Father, in this day when it's so easy for us to be polarized, so easy for us to be hostile to those movements that are hostile to us, Father, we want to, we want to commit ourselves to being your people who follow your will. And we want to be the ones to invite them to the party. Break our hearts and make us willing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Doxology Bible Church podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes. If you're ever in the Fort Worth area, we'd love to worship with you in person at one of our services. For more information on service times and location, visit doxology.church.